The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. All right. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much. Um, This is uh, Justin Kemp with the Democracy Paradox podcast. Uh, This is my first uh, first interview on the podcast, and I have with me. uh, All right, I'm going to make sure I pronounce this right. Dr. Mauk is with me today. Uh, She is the author of Citizen Support for Democratic and Autocratic Regimes. Um, this is really an incredible book. I want to get that out of the way. Um, can, can you confirm for me? Um, I think we, we discussed this. Is this really your first book? Yeah, of course it's my first book. I mean, it's, it's, it's based on my PhD uh-huh. and thank you so much for liking it and for actually reading it. I mean, it's been out for only a couple of weeks. So. Yeah. You already. I, I, I like to get to, uh, to, to stuff right away when it comes out. It's really exciting um, to see publications kind of um, as, they, as they first come out. And uh, I've had some access to some of the Oxford publications. So it's been really lucky during this, uh, during the last couple months, um, you know, and I saw your book and it, it just really caught, caught my attention. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and um, uh, a little bit about why you chose this topic for your research? Okay, um, yeah, so my name's Marlene, and um, as you heard, I just sort of recently finished my PhD about two years ago. Um, I'm a political scientist by training, a comparative political scientist, and I now work at GESIS, which is a German infrastructure institution for the social sciences. Um, and why did I choose my, my research topic? So that's actually kind of, it's a longer story, I suppose. I mean, it's, it's what I learned during my, my undergrad studies, basically. It's, it's been the topic that, that's always been most interesting to me, like attitudes, people's attitudes. Um, when you first read, I think it was like in first or second semester, we read um, Almond and Verba's Civic Culture. And I've always been impressed by, like, I thought it was such a neat idea to think, okay, people's attitudes explain things because they explain behavior and people are what make up states. And so they're really central. And a lot of political science sort of overlooks this, I think. I mean, that's what, what we what we discussed back then. And so that's always been interesting. I've always been interested in, in attitudes. And uh, then I, yeah, I started doing comparative research a couple, couple years later when I did my yeah, I did it sort of doing work, I worked as a research assistant, and then I wrote my master's thesis on uh, democratic support in Cambodia, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, and that's, that's kind of where I started out doing this support in autocracies topic. Um, uh-huh. So that's why I do come from mostly. So I started out my, my PhD working on autocracies. Uh, I want to look at support for autocracies. But at some point I realized you can't really think about support for autocracies if you don't think about support for democracies as well. And that's, that's how I ended up writing on support for democracies and autocracies. I find it interesting you talk about the element and verba piece because um, when I was reading your first few chapters, it was very, it was very based in, the, in just the foundations of political science, the behaviorist um, approach dating back to the 50s and through the 60s. I mean, I'm reading through the citations as I was reading through the chapter, and I'm like, oh, yeah, Robert Dahl. Okay, yeah, I know that. Samuel Huntington. Okay, read that piece. Um, But it's kind of punk rock, your piece, because 
Uh, yeah, it, because you take something that is very, I mean, you have a very traditional approach, a very, um, you use very traditional sources, but then it's got this twist on it about um, saying, okay, now we're gonna look at not why people support democracy, but why people support an autocracy. And that's something that Lipset and Dow to some, I mean, they just don't even conceive of that possibility in a way. Um, I think they don't even really think about autocracy like at all. <laughs> no, no. But who actually does it? And that's, the, that's probably the scholar I would say is like the, the most basic for my work is David Easton. Okay, yeah. He's always, for him, it was always support for any political system. He said that's important for any type of system. I mean, he had a different notion of support in a way, but he was always talking about all, all kinds of democracies and democracies. So it's not super new either, you know, that the thought was there all the time. And Ireland and Weber actually also, they only look at democracies, but they, they, their whole concept is also general. No, and that's actually what I found fascinating as well when I dug deeper into this topic that all those thoughts have been there for 50, 60 years, but they haven't gotten much of attention from political science. Um, a few years ago, um, I read an article and it's one that you cited. Um, and this is the one that, that got me thinking a lot about this before I even came across your book, um, which is part of the reason why I got excited when I saw the title. Um, and even more excited as I delved into it, uh, was, um, was an article uh, from post-Soviet affairs called Is Putin's Popularity Real? Um, and it's, it's got a couple scholars on it, Timothy Fry, Scott Gelbach, uh, Kyle Marcotte, uh, and Orijan Ruder. Um, they, they wrote that piece. And the thing that really kind of caught my attention when I read that was uh, I came across it um, in a citation in the Journal of Democracy. And there was a different scholar that was writing on that same topic about uh, Kremlin and Bolden. Um, he wrote about Putin is not Russia. It was Vladimir uh, Karim uh, Mirza. And it, he, the, the entire concept that Putin could actually have any sense of support literally angered him, it, it felt like. Um, do you feel like there's any kind of sense of that in some of the in some of the literature, especially among uh, democracy scholars, that that it's automatically conceived that um, the people naturally support democracy and are automatically opposed to autocracy? I wouldn't say there's a bias, but I think. Yeah, there's a, I mean, obviously there's a normative bias against autocracy, which I fully support and share, of course. Yeah, of um, course. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, maybe in the, the sort of, I mean, the beginnings of political culture research, I mean, if we go beyond um, Weber, but like the large scale survey projects, they, they came about in the 90s. And they were, most of them looked at democracies only in the beginning. Because um, mm -hmm. obviously it's also, it's a much, it's much easier to do public opinion service in democracies. Um, and, and there's also, this. I mean, it's a good point to try to understand your own system first before you start looking at our system. Um, I think it's just been something that's really not been discussed a lot for many, many years in political science. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if it was inconceivable as, as that, but I think it's just been neglected in a way and it just came back to the radar, onto the radar, maybe 10 years ago. This is this is um, general article by Johannes Gashevsky in Democratization, I think. Uh, the Three Pillars of Autocratic Stability. Don't even know that one. Uh, that's where he describes that, they have, that autocracies have three ways of, of surviving, which is cooptation, repression, and support. And he's one, one of the first, I think, that brought back to the discussion in political science that autocracies also need support from the citizens. I mean, it's not only that they can be supported, they also need it to survive in the long run. Uh -huh. They can't live on repression alone. Uh -huh. But uh, in your book, you also note that that support is different. 
Can you talk a little bit about, um, because your book gets into this, what are some of the causes of support for democracies and autocracies? You mentioned some differences, but you also mentioned some similarities. Um, yeah, what, what I actually found, and to be honest, that's not what I expected to find from the start. Um, I found that, because I look at individual level sources and I look at system level sources. And I expect that both of them to differ between democracies and autocracies. Because I thought, okay, autocracies, they obviously, they can't build on democratic legitimation. So they can't sort of say, okay, we're legitimate because you elected us and you have the say and you have political rights and so on. And so I thought, okay, they must, and we know that that's the case, they must sort of follow different legitimation strategies. For example, like a, a personal personality cult around the leader or some sort of divine intervention or whatever, or often it's just modernization and economic performance. I expected, okay, people might follow these strategies, right? They, they might work for them, and then they would, they would value these things more than they would value democratic performance. But what I find is that on the individual level, people everywhere value the same things. So it's important for them that they have what they at least think is high democratic performance, so they live in a more or less democratically governed country. Of course, economic performance is important, safety is important to them, and also they, they, they want popular people in power. Um, they want to support the incumbents, or they, they want an incumbent they can support. But on a system level, it's very different. And that's, I think, with where the systematic difference between democracies and autocracies lies. In democracies, for example, actual democratic performance, so the quality of democracy is fairly closely connected to what people think democratic performance in that country is. I mean, there's also lots of differences and not everyone's clear on, on what we mean by that, but it's fairly closely connected. In autocracies, there's barely any connection at all. So people, even though they value the same things as in democracies, they're less well informed about the actual way things are in their countries. And my idea is that this has to do with autocratic propaganda and indoctrination. And I, I sort of explain this a bit more in the book, but the idea is that for one, people are sort of indoctrinated into believing different things, into valuing different things, so into, into understanding, for example, terms like democracy differently. Uh, and at the same time, they also just get less precise information about democratic performance, about economic performance. I mean, just think about uh, the, the growth numbers that come from China every year. We're pretty sure they're not true, but that's what people in China will hear. And um, yeah, so I think that's the main difference. It's the linkage between actual real world system level factors and what people think um, these, these things are like. So yeah, their perceptions of, of, of the real world. Do you feel like there's a different relationship between the citizen to the state citizen to the law in a democracy versus an autocracy because I, I kind of hear an institutional difference just in terms of the media itself do you feel like that extends out to other parts of the government yeah probably um it's a bit hard to say because it's not what i've studied but sure. um and it's also i mean i think it might be a bit confounded with the general context of autocracy. So most autocracies are in a bit less developed countries and I think it might have to do with that as well. But I think in autocracies, typically, citizens have lower expectations of government. Uh -huh. That's what I would guess, but I, I don't have any evidence on that. So that's just my, my guess. Um, yeah, they expect probably less accountability because also that's what they're used to, right? Um, sure. They, well, maybe they expect a bit different things, like they expect maybe the provision of, of the social security or healthcare or stuff like that. That, that kind of comes back to the Armitaya Sen's uh, development is freedom idea. The idea that like, um, and, and just his broader research in terms of um, democracies have never had famines, things like that, that democracies are better at, at taking care of its citizens themselves. Um, I could see how people would expect that in a democracy, but maybe maybe fail to expect that in a system where they're not included. Um, 
which is by definition what an autocracy is, um, the failure of inclusion. Um, can, uh, okay, one of the most controversial findings I, I thought you had, and it's to me it's the most disturbing, um, because uh, I kind of started the, the entire podcast to understand democracy, but also to understand democracy because I want it because I support democracy. Um, and, and your finding was that um, it, it's slightly true in, in your study, but you said autocracies actually have more support than democracies. Why? Well, first of all, I wouldn't say they have more support. I mean, that if okay. you look at the bare means of support in democracies and in autocracies, it's a bit higher in autocracies. But we need to take into account that there is always a problem with public opinion surveys in sure. liberal countries. So people might be a bit, I mean, I looked at a couple of hints on whether this may or may not be true. And it, there's a good reason to expect that people answer more relatively truthfully as well in autocracies. Um, sorry. Um, but we might, we might attribute this, I think it's like about a nine percentage percent point um advantage. that close is kind of disturbing isn't it yeah it is yeah it is i mean even if it's like even if you say okay like the difference maybe might be accountable to or attributable to the sort of preference falsification in public opinion surveys it's still disturbing that they get the same amount of support because again i also have this normative bias which is pro-democracy um sure. which think okay people shouldn't support a regime that's obviously not democratic but then Again, we need to take into account that people that live in autocracies often don't know that well that those countries are autocratic. I mean, again, think of China. China is very good in claiming it's democratic yep. towards its own citizens, at least. Um, and so does, for example, Vietnam. Or all, I mean, just think of the whole trend of electoral autocracies. That's, that's the main reason, I guess, behind this, them allowing multi-party elections to pretend they're democratic. And if you've never lived, I mean, if you've lived in a one-party autocracy for, for all of your life, and then suddenly there's multi-party elections, even though they may be flawed, you would still think that's a big progress. Well, even Turkey, which has which backslided quite a bit, um, yeah. it, people still refer to the coup as, some, as, as trying to undermine their Turkish democracy, which today Freedom House ranks them as, as, as an authoritarian system today. Um, they don't even consider them a hybrid regime anymore. Um, so yeah, um, it's, it's, uh, I, I know what you mean about people looking at it as, as being democratic when it's not necessarily so. Now you've kind of gotten into this already and you mentioned this a bit in the book about the role of media, especially in terms of like an autocracy using propaganda, but um, in terms of a democracy that living in the United States the media has become extraordinarily polarized um, between things like on Fox News for Republicans, um, even some some sources of media for the left as well, uh, and definitely with social media, with Facebook and Twitter, where you kind of have your own bubble um, of, of news media that comes into you for your own own personal bias. Um, do you feel like like that? could be something that undermines democracy because it it moves you towards that sense of autocracy where where you have a distorted a distorted sense of, of reality in terms of how governance is working yeah i mean i'm by no means an expert on the us so i just sure. have this outsider's perspective of someone who follows the media basically um i, I imagine it's like that a little bit in, in everywhere due to social media though. Um, yeah, but I think it's it's very special soon. Yes, I mean, at least from what we in Germany hear or read about it. Um, yeah. <laughs> you see those videos of Trump supporters and Trump opponents clashing and it's not like that in, it's not like that in Germany. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think, yeah, I think that that can be a problem for democracy. Um, First of all, what you already said, that people only get sort of half of the information or all the information they get is already tinted towards a particular worldview. Um, and the other problem, of course, is what you also mentioned is polarization. 
because I think polarization can, I mean, to a certain extent, it's not a problem for democracy. That's what democracies are built on. I mean, it's pluralism. There needs to be different perspectives for democracy to, to work properly. But uh, if they get too polarized and too extreme, I think that can be a, a problem because A, it makes working together very difficult. And also, I mean, that's also something I find in my book is that incumbent support is really important also in democracies. And if you have a very polarized citizenry, then half of the citizenry supports the incumbent, but the other half despises them. Um, that's not going to be good for the stability of the system. Um, you, you cited a book by uh, Milan Spolik um, from 2012. Have you read some of his more recent articles on uh, polarization? Some of them are just working papers, I believe. Like, um, um, I'm not sure. No, I don't think so. If it's okay. He's, he writes a lot. He, he wrote a study not too long ago that really got my attention. Um, that, uh, that I think is still unpublished, although you can find it on the web super easy. Um, that's called When Polarization Trumps Civic Virtue. And he does, uh, he goes through and does a, an actual study in Venezuela where he does like a test to be able to see if people would support a non-democratic candidate provided that it fit their, their viewpoints. And, um, the more polarized the society is, the more likely you are to support enough somebody who's likely to subvert democracy. Um, and that, that really catches my attention because I feel like that's very similar to where the United States has been going. One of the dangers for the United States, I guess I should say. So Yeah, but I mean, the, the, the problem in parentheses, and not parentheses, what it, what it is called in English? I don't know. The, uh, can you see like the... Quotation marks. Yeah, yeah, quotations, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the problems for democracy is that, I mean, it always gives legitimacy to the opponent's view as well. And if you see it not just as a different, like an alternative policy, but if you see them as your enemy, really, then this yeah. legitimacy might be something you're not really supporting. Yeah, no, that's, that's, definitely, that's definitely a concern. Um, now, okay, so you... Your final chapter, you go through and you, you lay out some prescriptions for uh, how democracies can regain support um, if, they're, if they're struggling. What, um, what are some of those, those prescriptions that you recommend uh, to encourage democracies to regain support or, uh, or to maintain it? Well, I think the first one I've already mentioned, um, because incumbent support is, is really important for regime support. And so my, um, my advice would be to, for incumbents to try and maximize support. And I think that the best way to do this, and this is not what's happening in the US right now, is to steer clear of extremist positions, because those will alienate a lot of people. Um, so um, to, to go for more of a consensual way um, of ruling as well, trying to, to also implement maybe some of the, the opposition's ideas or at least discuss them. Um, that, that's one of the ideas. And then the other one is, one, the other recommendation would be, because also democratic quality is really important to people uh, in democracies. So to improve that would also be good. I mean, there's, all, there's always a limit. If you live in a high quality democracy already, there isn't really that much room for improvement. But my book is, is based on a global sample of democracy. So there's a lot of democracies in there that have very real problems in democratic quality. High levels of corruption or a lack of the rule of law or stuff like that. And that's obviously something that democracies can and should address, and they should address it both for normative reasons and um, for reasons of gaining support. Now, that's something that citizens apparently value. Oh yeah, now you mentioned um, incumbent support a lot, um, even in this interview. Um, living in Germany, uh, Angela Merkel has been in power longer than the United States would even allow her constitutionally. Longer than some autocrats, yeah. Yeah. Um, do you find that um, that that helps? Do you find that that's due to 
um, an institutional feature of Germany, or do you think that that's due to a cultural difference with Germany? Her being in power for so long? Yeah, I mean, do you feel like um, the fact that they're, and, and they've had, Germany's had a lot of leaders that have been able to hold on to. Um, yeah, and Helmut Kohl was also in power for 16 years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he got the sort of lucky coincidence that right in the middle of his term was German reunification, which gave him a gigantic boost. Um, but yeah, Merkel, I think, I'm not sure if it's, it's a cultural thing in Germany. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say that. Um, I mean, there's always this stereotype of the German sort of subordinate culture, subject cultures. Um, I, I'm not going... We I'm like our going, rulers, but... Yeah, I'm not trying to go there and go negative. I'm trying to go yeah. um, in terms of the sense of incumbent support. She obviously seems to have it. Yeah, I, I think Merkel is, is also different. For, I, I mean, he's been chancellor for all of my adult life, basically, as well. Um, sure. Uh, she has a very... And she, that's what I what I said as a recommendation for, for leaders in democracies to try and maximize support by taking up some of the opposition's policy proposals. I mean, she's she's the Christian Democrat chancellor and they are typically a very conservative party, but the, some of the policies she's implemented are clearly social democratic policies. She, I mean, you could say she's, she's yeah, she borrowed them would be, would be a nicer term. Um, from the Social Democrats, and that's, I think that's what, what also helped her um, yeah, secure support from such a wide range of, of people because, yeah, she, she gets supported. I mean, she as a person also gets a lot of support from people that would never vote for her party. Um, and also she's been really good in crisis situations, I think, like the financial crisis, coronavirus crisis again she's she's done a very good job in managing these um or the refugee crisis as well i mean also if you look at that she opened the borders um which is not a conservative policy at all to do um uh -huh. so yeah i think she's just good in in sort of being i mean this is this is saying that she's a social democratic <laughs> Chancellor, basically, but in, she's in the wrong party. <laughs> that's uh, that's interesting. I, I hadn't heard uh, heard that before, but I haven't read deep into the German politics. Uh, that's uh, I see her a lot more on the international stage, so that's interesting to get that perspective on um, regarding the prescriptions. I feel like a lot of them kind of um, relate back to things that I've read in uh, Leipzig with his patterns of democracy in the sense of consensual democracy, and you even mentioned that earlier. Um, do you feel like it's like institutionals, institutions themselves are more important, or do you feel like the culture, the actual um, attitudes of the citizens are more important to um, strengthening democracy and strengthening support for democracy? Yeah, that's, that's a difficult question. I mean, I think obviously both are important. Um, and I've been, I mean, Leipzig's been a big influence on my work as well. I mean, it's, it's something we just read a lot. Um, it makes a lot of sense. You don't ever mention him, but I feel like he's there. Yeah, he never did any research on attitudes, so. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, but, um, I think he, yeah, I, I really like his, um, his books and I mean he has what I find very interesting about his work is that he has this it's very I mean it's not very implicit actually I mean it's, it's it's very obvious that he has this also this normative bias towards consensual democracy yes um, but it's yeah being socialized into that kind of system myself, I can relate to that very strongly. And um, I would agree with, with Leipzig that consensual institutions are probably more successful in uh, securing long-term support from citizens as well. I mean, as you probably know, Leipzig 
differentiates. He says that majoritarian democracies are, are fine for homogenous societies, but we need consensus democracies. We have more heterogeneous societies. Just not every um, society is heterogeneous when you get down to it, to be honest. Yeah, and it's gonna be more and more heterogeneous. I, I just, I, my blog post um, from yesterday is on a book called uh, Talkative Polity. It's about uh, the Ebemizas uh, over in uh, Uganda from 2000 to 2009. It's written by uh, uh, Florence Brissette Foucault. And um, what's interesting is I'm not, I'm not an expert on African politics, um, but uh, it, it always amazes me when I read about those that I find that they're so diverse and complex inside of those nations. And it's true in Asia too. The more um, I read, a, uh, did a review on a book um, uh, from uh, Duncan Cargo uh, about uh, the justice system in Thailand and learning about how complex the, um, the ethnicities are in Thailand and how diverse it is just really floored me. I'd imagine that you might have even seen that in your studies in Cambodia, even though that that's not a country I've done any deep dives, only read a couple articles about Cambodia before. Yeah, I don't, I think Cambodia is fairly homogeneous, but you, you speak about Uganda and that, that's a funny coincidence because I've, I've done some work in Uganda, not political science work, but, but uh -huh. um, we've organized some, some trainings in social sciences there. And so I, and I've also been amazed by how many different yeah, I think it's tribes is the right word still. Um, and how many different languages and, and cultures yes. and they have still have some sort of kingdoms and it's yes, it's incredibly diverse. And it's something we don't know a lot about, I think. And if you look at European societies, they're also diverse, but in a very different way. And I think, yeah, majoritarian democracy wouldn't work very well for a country like Uganda. Yeah. But that's like most of the world is my point. Yeah. Is the world is more like that than they are homogenous. Like the United States seems to pretend like we're the only multiracial country in the world. Yeah. And it's, it's, there's a lot more diversity than we realize sometimes. Yeah, and in Europe, we have this very Eurocentric view where we think everyone is just like us, um, which uh -huh. is obviously not the case. <laughs> But uh, okay, well, um, I wanted to uh, to ask you about to kind of go a little bit down down a different rabbit hole. Um, you referenced towards the end about uh, about the deconsolidation hypothesis from Roberto Stefan uh, Foa and uh, Yasha Mank, and that's something that it, it's interesting because when I first started diving into democracy hardcore, that's one of the first things that I read. Was, um, was their studies on deconsolidation. And um, you cite this other, other article too, so I know you're aware of it, the, um, that, uh, that Mauk and, and Foa both see the sense that from the World Value Survey, they say that the entire world is facing deconsolidation. But Ronald Englehart, who, who actually manages the World Value Survey, wrote a response to them that he said, hey, it's not really as bad as they say, I don't really see that, that there's deconsolidation around the world, but the United States is a special case that's probably happening there. Um, I, I thought that that, that kind of didn't, didn't rub me the right way. But um, uh, even though I saw, saw some validity, validity to that, um, do, you, do you see, um, like you mentioned about like a loss of, of democracy, a support of democracy over in Eastern Europe, do you see a similar loss of support in democracy in the United States, or do you feel like it's it, it's strong in other ways? Well, I think first of all, just to be clear, I mean, what I, I only look at one uh, point in time in my book, so I can't really say there's a loss in democracy or a decline. Um, but there are low levels of democracy, uh, support for democracy in Eastern Europe, um, and. I mean, we do see that Poland and Hungary are clearly backsliding. Of course. Might have even crossed the line now. Um, so that, as sad as it is, sort of neatly ties into my findings. Um, but, yeah, I wouldn't, on this whole deconsolidation debate, um, 
what Fräulein Munk look at is support for democracy in principle. So uh -huh. do you think democracy is a good idea, basically? And I wouldn't agree with their very pessimistic view either. So I'm more on the Engelhardt side. And this, this also, I think Chris Welser wrote about it, Tipa Norris, lots of others. Yes. Um, it's a whole debate, I'm sure you're aware, um, where people bring a lot of evidence that what Fo and Munk claim might not be entirely accurate. And I would agree with that side of the argument that we don't see like a major shift away from support for democracy as a principle in yeah in the world um or the, the established democracies that they look at the uh... Uh, yeah i mean what i look at is support for democracy so in practice so the political regime itself uh-huh and i also wouldn't agree with the view that this is low in general i mean as i said i can't say anything about developments but if you look at my results, you see that it varies a lot from country to country, which is what we would expect because countries are very different and they might be in different situations. Um, they might have different problems. They might be undergoing some sort of crisis. I mean, I don't look at individual countries, so I can't really those factors. Um, but also, yeah, I wouldn't support the deconsolidation thesis either from this point of view. It's, I'm not it, saying there's nothing to it, but it's, I wouldn't see the sort of overwhelming evidence that they, they see. Sure. It's, it's interesting you mentioned Poland crossing the line. Um, I got an early look at Andrew Kwan's book and wrote, the, uh, wrote a blog on it, Twilight of Democracy. Um, she's, she's lived in Poland and she talks about the way that people have actually changed their behavior in Poland. And, and it's a fascinating like insight into it. Obviously, Annie Applebaum is more of a reporter, so she's looking at it from a very personal experience, but she's very intellectual in the approach that she takes, so that's, it's really interesting. It's, that book's though, I, I don't think that's coming out until this month, but that was a, a book that kind of jumped out at me when you mentioned about Poland. Um, you meant, you're, in your book, you also talk about Sub-Saharan Africa. And that's not a place I think of as a hotbed of democratization. Um, but you see a lot of potential in their support for, uh, for democracy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, sure. Um, yeah, Sub-Saharan Africa actually stands out as the, the world region that has the highest average support for their democratic regimes, um, which was also surprising to me because same as you, I wouldn't think, if I think of democratization or democracy, I wouldn't think of Sub-Saharan Africa in the first place. Um, but then I think there's, there's maybe two reasons for this. The first one is that lots of those democracies are fairly newly democratized countries. Um, and we know that there's this so-called honeymoon period after democratization, where people are just really happy they got rid of their autocratic rulers. Um, for good reason, obviously. And they, they just like basically everything about the new regime, which is then democratic. Um, I think the second reason that also has to do with the autocracies is that if there's one thing I think that unites people in Sub-Saharan Africa, um, that's speaking of a vast continent, a very diverse continent, um, yeah. is their disappointment with those long-term autocratic rulers. Um, if you speak to, as I said, I've, I've worked with a couple of Ugandans, and if you speak to them um, about Museveni, it's always like, he's been in power for 30 years and there's no one else. And he's not doing a very good job either. Uh, so yeah, I think a lot of citizens in sub-Saharan African autocracies are longing for a change in government. And if you look at I think it was last week that Mali actually had an election and mm -hmm. the opposition won, which wasn't expected. And uh, so I think there is actually a, a good chance of democratization. I mean, there's always, you, you, you might be familiar with Larry Diamond's work saying yes. that, that um, Southeast Asia is the new, is the, sort of the, the hotbed of a new wave of democratization. Uh, but, and I, I used to agree with him, but 
these days, I actually think, okay, it might be Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and if you also, if you follow modernization theory, you would also expect it to be Southeast Asia because those countries are much more developed already, but it might still be, modernization is rapid in Sub-Saharan Africa and the expansion of education is rapid. And at the same time, and it also goes back to what I said in the beginning about propaganda and indoctrination in autocracies, to do that successfully, you need a certain amount of state capacity. And a lot of African autocracies don't have it as much as the Southeast Asian. Just think of Singapore. It, they're brilliant in what they're doing. If you go to Northeast Asia, China is, I mean, yeah. They're the ideal autocracy in that way. I mean, they're, they're I'm sorry to say it that way, they're brilliant in what they're doing. Right? I, I don't know you want to say ideal to any autocracy, but. Yeah, that's, that's uh, <laughs> I mean, they're doing, yeah. Um, I, I know what you mean. Doing, I yeah. think, yeah. And I think um, autocracies in Sub-Saharan Africa might not be as clever in deceiving the citizens. Um, and so there, there might be, there might be a good chance of more democratization coming from, from that part of the world. No, that's, that's really fascinating to me. Um, I, I don't like modernization theory. I, I feel like they've never answered the, the very important question of how India was able to democratize when it, it didn't meet at all the standards that Lipset had laid out in his uh, social requisites of democracy. Uh, democracy, I think it was the article in 59. Um, although Lipset, in in his other work, it's all about culture. So I always hate that everybody refers back to the economic standards that he laid out in that one article that makes up a single chapter of a book that's really about political culture. Yeah, political man, right? Is yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, political man. Yeah, yeah. It's. Um, I like the fact that you cited that both both pieces. Uh, I feel like a lot of people overlook the book, um, but uh, it's uh, but um, there's a new book by David Stasavage uh, that talks about it's called the uh, decline and rise of democracy. And his point is is that early cultures were much more democratic, and then they and then as things kind of grew up, they became less democratic before they became more democratic again. Um, I guess my point is, is that I don't think that the key to democracy is just having more money. Um, I, I always thought that that, I just feel that that misses the key part of what democracy is, which is a sense of inclusion into the political process. You know, um, that, that money helps, but it's not the key single factor that matters. Yeah, um, I would agree that money alone can't sustain democracy and can't bring about democracy for sure. Um, I mean, also there's this interesting, I mean, now that you, say, that you mentioned that, that people always overlook the book behind Lipset's article. They also overlook that he says actually, I'm more likely to sustain democracy rather than actually get it. Um, but yeah, um, now, but I think, I mean, money and saying money meaning socioeconomic development, which is yep. also, I mean, Lipset is often reduced to wealth because that's his famous quote, but it's not just wealth for him, it's mainly education. Education is the key factor for Lipset. And I think that that is important. Um, and also, I mean, yeah, material, I mean, wealth isn't, is too much, but at least the basic sustenance is important as well, because obviously, I mean, that's a classic, um, Maslow's um, hierarchy of needs, right? If you if you can't find food to eat and you can't find shelter, you, you don't care about who's who's in power because you have other things to worry about. Um, even getting back to the education idea, Africa is much more educated than a lot of places were at the point that they began the process of democratization today than they were in the past. So I can see how that's possible for that to happen. Um, in the book that I read, the, the talkative polity, um, uh, Reset Foucault talks about um, a lot of the people that were involved in this, this social process of the Ebenezer um, were highly educated and that they've got this almost surplus of college graduates. Um, and, and I read about that also in the Middle East, um, in the MENA, 
uh, Middle East, North Africa region, that around the world there seem to be pockets of, of you know, more graduates sometimes than there are jobs for them. So to say, hey, education is important, that might be, it, it that, you know, that, that might be why democracy is possible just about anywhere in the world right now. Yeah, Was yeah. It? If you yeah, if you think about the, the original Lipset work and the state of education law established democracy side when they democratized, yeah, absolutely right. Um, yeah, I, I mean, and also both education and money, if they're concentrated in the hands of the state, they can help sustain autocracy as well. Because again, indoctrination is mainly conveyed through the education system. And money obviously can help you sustain or gain support in a number of ways. I mean, just think of, I think it was Bahrain or Kuwait who, in the wake of the Arab Spring, just gave like a blanket check to every citizen. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and Larry Diamond's kind of flipped the switch in terms of that idea, too, because he talks, uh, he was talking about how oh, everything's moving towards democracy for a long time. And then at the point that he talked about the democratic recession, he's kind of flipped the switch where, you know, he had a recent article um, in Journal of Democracy where he's talking about the uh, um, digital totalitarianism now and things like that. That uh, He kind of sees your point that state capacity can allow things that maybe wouldn't have been possible uh, without the resources that some of these states have. So, um, is there, okay, so your, your book just came out. Uh, I wanted, I want to go through that one more time here. It's, uh, citizen support for democratic and autocratic regimes. If somebody's interested in using your book as a springboard towards further research, if we got somebody who's a PhD student listening or somebody who's working in, in the field and they're trying to wonder what they could do to build on your work, what would be the next step that you kind of see moving beyond the book that you just produced? Um, well, the thing that they will, I would find most interesting and what I plan to work on in the future as well is to, to precisely look at this link or this missing link between system level real world context and people's perception of this real world. Um, in auto and it's a missing link in autocracies. And at what drives, because that's what I haven't looked at in a lot of detail is what drives citizen perceptions of the world and how, based on what do they evaluate the level of democracy in their country, based on what do they evaluate the, the economic performance of their, their regime. And to, to investigate the role that, I mean, for my book, it's just, it's a hypothesis to say it's it's indoctrination and propaganda. I, I haven't actually had the data to look at it. And um, I don't think the data yet exists, at least not on this kind of global scale. Um, you probably have to go to case studies to, to look at this, but that would be a really interesting thing to investigate. And I would love if someone would do it. Um, and there's also, there's some, there's, a data collection project actually going on, um, led by Anja Neundorf, um, who's collecting at least some of the data I think that would be needed to, to look at. She's collecting a lot of media data, which would yeah. be super interesting once I, it's finished. Yeah. I'm amazed at the data that I start finding that, that you just kind of read about. People are like, oh, and we created this entirely new data set. And you're like, holy cow, how long did that take you? Um, there's a lot of stuff popping up all the time so who knows maybe somebody's working on that and we just don't know about it yet um, okay well thank you very much for taking the time to talk to talk to me and uh, this has been really informative um, very excited about your book so um, yeah thanks so much for inviting me I mean um, you said this was your first interview in the podcast it was also my first interview so um I'm, I'm happy to, to be part of this. And um, yeah, I love that. Yeah. I didn't know about your blog before, um, but I think it's fascinating. You read all those books and I think it's a great thing because I think a lot of people 
don't have the time or can't find the time or can't make the time to read entire books. And I think it's, it's great that you actually take that effort and discuss them. And that's, that's a great thing. I think, yeah. Thanks. Um, what, I'm really happy to. to, to <laughs> one of the things that was always on my mind was um, the sense that like when I was an undergrad, I never knew what book I was supposed to, what books I was necessarily supposed should be reading. Like you'd hear about some stuff, but you're like, okay, how important is this? Or what's, what, what are the classics? What's the stuff? Um, and what's the, what's the newest stuff that's out there? Like what are the newest books that are really cutting edge? And um, I, I've got, now that I'm older, I'm able to figure that out really easily. And uh, I, you know, hope, hope uh, people, uh, you know, makes it easier for people to say, Hey, I, I can, uh, that looks interesting to me. I'm going to read that now and hopefully read it like your book shortly after it's published, you know, rather than, uh, rather than finding it dusty in a library somewhere and going, huh, you know, nobody's read that yet. I think, I think, I think these books should be read. I think these books should be read. I think your book should be read. So it was Thank very you. good. Yeah. And uh, like I said, it's a great topic. It makes you think more. And again, it talks about citizen support for autocratic regimes as well as democratic. But I think the key behind it is to help us understand how to be able to develop our democracies better. Um, I, I do have a normative bias, obviously. Um, and I, I, I want to strengthen democracy in the United States and the world. And, uh, and I think your book helps us get some ideas on how to be able to do that. So. That, that's great to hear, yeah. I mean, that's what, I also have a normative bias and it, it also becomes clear in the conclusion of the book, I think. Yes. It has been clear before, but yeah. Um, so I would love for, yeah, somebody to pick it up and actually strengthen democracy. Uh, all right, well, thank you very much. And uh, uh, thanks again, you can read more. You can find this podcast and all the podcasts at democracyparadox.com along with my blog. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll be here again next week. Thanks. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.